I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So if you've been attending any of my, my talks uh, while we've been on Zoom, you'll notice slightly different background today. I have a nice new comfy chair, so I thought I'd take advantage of it and be in a different place in my living room. Still a lot of bare walls. The minimalist in me just refuses to put things up, but hey, you get to see my front door. So before I get into the, the sort of meat of today's talk, I wanted to first start out by talking about my love of movies growing up. You know, as far back as I could remember, I always enjoyed going to the movie theater, the drive-in theater, anything like that. Like most people, I also enjoyed watching movies from home, going to a video rental place, things like that. But there was always something about going to the movie theater, buying the snacks, sitting in the chairs, watching the trailers, all of it. And when I was a little kid, my favorite thing to do at the movies was to eat nachos. Now, they're not great nachos by any stretch of the imagination, but when I was a kid, those were my favorite. And try as I might to eat them carefully in the dark of the theater, I would undoubtedly end up with a dollop of nacho cheese on my shirt by the end of the movie as we were walking out. Always happened. And as I got older, I continued to enjoy going to the movies. Even as a young adult in my 20s, I would often take one day off a month just to go to the early showing, go to a matinee showing, just to watch a movie in a relatively quiet theater with my snacks and watch the trailers, watch the movie, and enjoy the whole experience. And that would be like my treat to myself that I would do once a month. So when we had this uh, pandemic that is, you know, still lingering on, but when things were really in the thick of it, you know, one of the things that my wife and I had decided is we weren't going to go to the movie theater. So I went pretty much two years without seeing anything, just movies at home. And, you know, again, nothing wrong with that. A lot of fun, just different experience. So it wasn't until maybe a, a month or so ago, my wife and I went to the California Science Center to see the, uh, the, uh, the Cambodian exhibit on the, the lost empire of uh, Angkor, right? And man, was that really cool. And there at the California Science Center, they have the, the IMAX theater and you know, the huge screen and everything. And we went to see the hour-long documentary that accompanies the, the exhibition, the exhibit. And uh, that was our, our first outing and seeing a, a movie in an actual theater after two years. Our second outing was to see the Batman. Now, by now, some of you might have seen this movie. Maybe some of you have no interest in seeing the movie. Either way, I'm not going to give any of the plot points away. In fact, the one thing I want to talk about was something that was in the trailer anyway. Which is, there's this one scene in the trailer, which is also in the movie, where there are these uh, you know, gang members... Uh, beating up on someone near some train tracks. And Batman materializes out of the darkness and ends up giving someone a, a good wallop after he asks, well, who are you supposed to be? And after beating this guy to a pulp, 
one-handed, Batman says, I am vengeance. Ooh. Good tagline for the movie, good quote in the trailer, and it's something said a couple times in the movie. And then, without giving too much away, by the end, Batman kind of realizes maybe that's a silly thing to, to say, and certainly a silly thing to be if you're looking to make much positive change in the world, being ve vengeance. You know, and it was the kind of thing where watching that in the theater and seeing it in the trailers and afterward thinking about it, noticing how odd a phrase it is, but also seeing it from a bit of a, of a Buddhist perspective. You know, when we talk about I and my making, well, that's it right there. Oftentimes when we're feeling feelings of, of hatred and, and anger, it's not so much that we have those feelings sort of swimming around in the body, but we identify with those feelings. We think of them as, as my anger, my hatred, my vengeance. But then we also go one step further and we'll think of them as us. Like, I am angry. You know, I am vengeance, just like in this movie. And so I started thinking about not only hatred, anger, vengeance, because it's something said in this movie that I'd only gotten to see recently, but also the, the, the flip side, you know, the, what in Buddhism we would refer to as like the, uh, the enemy of anger, the enemy of hatred, which is uh, metta. And so I'm using the Pali term for a very specific reason, which is because when we translate it into English, when we translate metta into English, it can get a bit tricky. Oftentimes, people will translate metta as, as loving kindness or loving friendliness or even just straight up love. And that's tricky to me because as I've continued to study Pali, um, metta doesn't, doesn't mean love. You know, uh, we have a word in Pali for love, and that's Pema. It's just like the, the teacher and author Pema uh, children, right? The Pema means love. So metta means, uh, as far as, as I can see in translating, and there are other translators that, that agree, you know, metta means something more like a, like a, a sense of, of goodwill. Literally like the opposite of, of hatred, the opposite of, of wishing someone ill will. It's goodwill. So that's, that's the meat of, of what I want to talk about today. You know, if, if we have uh, people in the media talking about how they are vengeance, uh, perhaps uh, we today can think about what it means to be metta, to be someone who uh, identifies with, with goodwill, identifies with a sense of, of wishing non-harm to others, to be a, a force for good in the world. So, if those of you who are attending today have not read the uh, Karaniya Metta Sutta, this is out of the it's the first book in the Kudana Nikaya, and Karaniya Metta is kind of an interesting phrase on its own because Karaniya has a sense of like someone's duty or obligation, uh, what one ought to do. So taken together, Karaniya Metta, we have a sense of the goodwill that should be developed, 
or what, what one ought to develop. And to further take home this idea that, that metta isn't about uh, love, we have the Buddha's own words on, on how one develops metta, what kind of thoughts accompany this feeling or drive this feeling that we, we nurture in our hearts. And the Buddha says, think, happy, at rest. May all beings be happy at heart. Whatever beings there may be, weak or strong, without exception, long, large, middling, short, subtle, gross, seen and unseen, living near and far away, born or seeking birth, may all beings be happy at heart. And the Buddha says further, Let no one deceive another or despise anyone anywhere or through anger or resistance perception wish for another to suffer. So one of the ways one of my teachers has put it is that goodwill at its very heart, at its very center, at its very core is the sincere wish for the happiness of others. And not just the normal kind of happiness. You know, when we're thinking of, of someone being able to cultivate their own happiness, we're not thinking of them having a lot, lot of money and a big house and a fancy car or you know, getting to be with all the people they want to be with or having all the friends they want to have. But rather, when we think about happiness for them, we think about true happiness, the happiness that that one can nurture inside that isn't dependent on anything else. You know, we're talking about the happiness that one derives from following the Eightfold Path. So in that sense, we have two kinds of uh, wishes for happiness. You know, one, one we might call the conventional kind, and then the kind that the Buddha also encourages us to develop, because it's not one or the other, it's just one is uh, more of a path factor than the other, which is the one where we wish for people to find the means to no longer cause harm to themselves and others, to, to find a secure happiness within. It's the same kind of happiness that we try to develop for ourselves. And I think that that's an important part that often gets left out, and one of the reasons why I disagree with the idea of metta being love. And that, I think, is illustrated in the next passage where the Buddha says, as a mother would risk her life to protect her child, her only child, even so should one cultivate the heart limitlessly with regard to all beings. Now this one ends up being tricky because when we hear this line, we think about what it means for a mother to protect their child, their only child. You know, there's a lot of a lot of strong emotion behind that, a lot of a sense of, of urgency, a lot of, a lot of passion in that statement. And I think that we tend to think about that in terms of the kind of fierce love that, that a, mo a mother might have for her only child, you know, like kind of like tiger mom energy, you know. But I think what's interesting is that in that line, the Buddha isn't talking about protecting everyone in that way or feeling towards everyone that way as if they were their only child, 
as if everyone in the world is meant to be our own son or daughter or child in general. I think that's often the, the way it's, it's interpreted, and I think it's especially the way it's interpreted in the West, especially in English. This sense that we have this, this, uh, this task to have that kind of feeling, that kind of intensity for all beings everywhere. Which, I don't know about you, but for me, feels like quite the tall order. If that were the standard that I had to love every single being, including all the ones I've never met, then I have not yet arrived at skillful metta for that reason. But if we look at what the Buddha is encouraging us to protect and what metta means as goodwill, then I think we see something a bit different. Well, actually, maybe a lot different, but certainly something that I feel we can actually put into practice, which is the sense of just not wanting to be a harmful agent in the world. And what we see is that in the way that a mother would protect their only child, we can protect our own hearts and within our hearts that metta that we're trying to cultivate. So if, and I think we might be splitting hairs, but I think it's an important point anyway, if we are protecting that metta that we're cultivating, if we are protecting our own hearts and making sure that that metta is well-nourished, well-fed, well-supported, that we live a life that's conducive to the cultivation of metta, then we have that kind of abundant metta that can be generated and spread in all directions, the six directions that the Buddha has in mind for us, that we send out metta indiscriminately to all beings everywhere, in front of us, behind us, above, below us, to all sides everywhere. And I think that that can only happen if we make sure that we protect our own heart, that we look after ourselves. In fact, earlier in the passage, the Buddha talks about how important it is to... Uh, live a, a life of a few duties or a few responsibilities. And I think it's easy to read something like that or hear something like that and assume that the, the Buddha is encouraging a kind of, of, of laziness. And rather, what the Buddha is teaching is, is a life of simplicity. How important it is to, to live a, a simple and good life that supports our practice. And metta requires that kind of support. You know, if one lives a very busy and hectic and stressful life and one does not make room for the practice within one's own life, one does not have the time to try to even cultivate these qualities, then something like metta, like goodwill, can't just spring from nowhere. So really what we're talking about in terms of being able to spread metta in all directions to everyone everywhere we have to first start by having that sense of metta, that sense of goodwill for ourselves. If we're really wishing for all beings everywhere, all sentient beings throughout the entire cosmos, to find true happiness, we have to first want that true happiness for us. And to know what that true happiness means. To know what it means to have the kind of resources to truly be blameless, to truly be harmless, to live a life contented in such a way that you no longer live in a way that's burdensome or troubling to others. 
One of the examples I love the most that the Buddha describes, he describes in terms of the monastics, but it's something that I come to as I think about living as a layperson all the time, which is to live like the the honeybees, going from flower to flower, feeding on the pollen and on the nectar, in such a way that they don't harm the flowers. They don't harm a single petal, and they're feasting, and they're delighting, and, and feeding on this nourishing nectar, on this nourishing pollen. Just dust it all over with delicious pollen, and they don't hurt a single thing in this process. And when I think about myself, that's precisely the kind of happiness I'm trying to create for myself and in my relationships with others. And I have to do that by making sure that I take care of myself first, that I leave room in my life to cultivate these qualities, to live a life of simplicity and seclusion. And you'll notice that me as a layperson, it doesn't mean that I'm off somewhere in a cave, no one's seen me for three years, right? It means I have to find that seclusion in the midst of my life lived as a layperson. And it's, it's a delicate balance. You know, in some ways, the life of a layperson ends up being far more complicated and tricky in terms of applying the practice than it does being a monk. And you would think it'd be the other way around with all the monks having all of the rules they have to follow, the certain ways they have to live their lives. They got to wake up early and do this and do that and all of this before sunset, the one meal a day kind of thing if they're following a, a stricter code of the Vinaya. But I got to tell you, we got it harder. Right? The, that's how the Buddha described it. He described the, the, lay, the lay disciple's life as one covered in dust, stressful, busy, not secluded. Which means we have the task of trying to find that kind of seclusion ourselves. Find time and space in our lives to wash that dust away. The practice of meditation is one of those ways, a part of the Eightfold Path. But it's also the way that we hold views, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act, the kind of job that we have. It becomes the deciding factor in all of our decision-making. That's what it requires to have that kind of spaciousness, to have the breathing room, to be able to reside in that feeling in the heart and protect it, protect the goodwill, protect the good feelings in the heart and cultivate them. I always come back again and again to how much the path is like gardening. Because there's so many ways in which plants have to be protected if we really want them to flourish. If they're getting too much sun, we have to build some way of putting shade over them. If they're not getting enough water, we have to make sure that they get watered. If there's not enough nutrients in the soil, we have to add those nutrients. They, can't, they don't just come from nowhere. There's something that needs to be done. In the Thai forest tradition, one of the Thai ajans, I can't remember which one, gave an example of... of trying to uh, be re reliant on outside sources while still trying to travel around on, on a boat or a ship. It's like if you didn't take any fresh water with you on a voyage and you, have to, you, know, you had to keep going back to port every single time to re replenish your supply of water, your fresh drinking water, because you can't just drink from the sea. And so you end up not going anywhere. You end up never reaching your destination because every time you make a good amount of, of distance, you have to turn right around, right back, and go back and get more water. And then even if you were to take barrels and barrels of water with you, then you're weighed down by the barrels and you drink them all up, eventually they're empty, and if you didn't time it just right, once again, you have to find some port. So 
The solution, then, is to find some way of becoming self-reliant, some way of cleaning up the salt water that's around you and turning, in, turning it into pure drinking water so that you have water with you at all times to drink, to nourish you. And so in this example, what we're talking about is how we manage to practice in such a way that we have reserves in the tank, that we're never empty, or in this example, we're never thirsty, we're never dried out, we're never parched, that we always have something to sip on, something to, to keep the, the lips wet and the body cool, relaxed in such a way that someone can have that metta, that sense of goodwill in their hearts. So when we sit down to, to meditate, and if our object of meditation is metta, that is one way of thinking about how we develop our metta. We want to make sure that the heart is full. And we do that by creating space, allowing the heart to fill with goodwill for others. Now, that doesn't mean that stressful interactions won't happen, because they will. You can live your life in such a way, and then still people from the outside will come along and provide plenty of, of ammunition for ill will, and plenty of ammunition for, for feelings of frustration that can easily become hatred. That's tricky. Because in the moment, it's so easy for that that kindling, whatever exists in the heart, to catch flame. So easy for that little spark to become something big big and bright. And we know this very well for those of us who live in Southern California. If everything's really parched, everything's really dry, and all it takes is that little bit of spark and whoosh, right? Everyone's got to start packing because the fire's coming down the hill. But if we can stay well hydrated, that means that when we do go out into the world, when we are amongst other people, and we're no longer in control of our surroundings to whatever extent we ever can be in control, when we are dealing with other people who themselves are not cultivating this path and have no interest in developing something like goodwill, we have that ability to put out the flames because the very initial kindling that would even start the flame in the first place is well damped, well saturated, you put a match to it and nothing happens. Maybe a little bit of smoke. You know, which, ironically, tends to make people around you even angrier. Because they wanted that rise out of you, and man, they're not going to get it. And so it's a way of being in the world and seeing people react that way and noting to yourself, ah, that's how they're being in the world. That's not how I'm choosing to be. And so with that very interaction, we find a way of using a skillful application of, this is a bad translation, but it's hard to find a better word for it, conceit. A way of looking at how others are being and how you are being and comparing in a healthy way. Not to say, ha-ha, I'm better, or oh, they're better and I'll never get there. But a sense of looking at others and going, okay, this is the work I need to do. Someone gives you an example of how not to be. But then there are also people who give you examples on how to be. And it's on how, knowing those comparisons and using them in such a way to go, ah, this is the way I need to be. So if we find ourselves in situations where we're surrounded by a lot of angry people, people with a lot of animosity in them, people who want to get riled up and angry about a thing, 
that's a perfect time to sit back and look and reflect in the way the Buddha has encouraged us to. And to go, okay, what can I do right now to alleviate my own sense of hatred, my own sense of anger, my own sense of aversion, aversion rather. And so, of course, we start thinking about metta, about goodwill. And if we're not feeling it towards anyone outside, we again can turn inward and at least start it for ourselves, realizing the ways in which anger is actually harming us, realizing the way hatred is actually harming us. We know many of us who've been Buddhist for a long time, that example of holding that piece of coal in your hand or poisoning yourself, expecting the other person to keel over. We know the feeling that, that hatred has in the body, that anger, aversion has in the body. We know that weightiness of it, the way it feels. It's like a sticky substance that you can't quite wipe clean no matter how many times you wash your hands. And so out of a sense of compassion for yourself in those moments, we can turn inward, we can breathe and create that spaciousness and find the seeds that are there that can start sprouting again. Because even within us, no matter how angry a person we think we are, no matter how much hatred we think we have, in between all of those plants that have already grown, there's always those seeds that can be nurtured and start sprouting again. In every single one of us, there's always that capacity. So when I was watching this movie, The Batman, which is good, but it, it can be difficult to watch because it's, it's a movie that, that plays in the gray. There's a lot of angry people who feel justified in their anger. A lot of people with hatred in their hearts that feel very justified in their hatred. And I'm already seeing the people who watch it and end up getting the wrong message when they see it. You know, they come out thinking like, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm also a vengeance. Which I think is missing the point. You know, again, without giving away the plot, the idea is that maybe being vengeance isn't such a great idea. But we also don't want to burden ourselves with something that's impossible to reach either. And if we think that we have to love every single person or have the perfect relationship with everyone, then that's going to be tough too. Right? We can have a sense of goodwill for people who have harmed us in the past, and we never have to see them again. We never have to talk to them again or try to nurture a relationship with, again, with them again, because there are some people in which it wouldn't be possible to do so. It would actually be harmful to do so. And to put ourselves ar uh, around, uh, say, abusers or, or toxic people or harmful people again, uh, does us a disservice because I think it actually breaks us away from our seclusion and our ability to continue to have that sense of goodwill. You know, this came up recently for me. Uh, someone uh, I know, an acquaintance, found out about a, a particular interaction with me and another person that happened about three or four years ago. And it was one of those instances where, you know, I was in a, in a position of, of vulnerability. There was a person who had power over me and had, uh, you know, abused that power. And there were some interactions, some words, uh, you know, actions were taken, talking with superiors and things, things of the like, and uh, nothing really happened. There were no consequences for this person who had, had abused their authority and, and power. And 
I saw fit to walk away from, from that interaction, walk away from that individual, and I haven't seen them since. But I haven't allowed animosity to exist in my heart either. I, I wish nothing but the best for this individual. But this acquaintance of mine uh, found out about it and is, is also someone on a Buddhist path, although, although different from mine. And approached me saying, "Hey, you know, I'm just, I'm just curious. Like, how, how are you going to repair this relationship with so and so? How are you going to, how you, how are you going to fix this, this relationship?" And I said, "Well, I, I don't really think I'm in the position to do that because I wasn't the one that caused the situation in the first place, and also this person was the one in power with authority over me that made me feel unsafe. So I think if this person wanted any of that to happen." They'd be speaking to me and not you. And I don't actually have to speak to this person again to cultivate on this path as a Buddhist and to work on my sense of goodwill for this person, which is true. But often not the way we think of it, especially if we think that every relationship has to be loving and every relationship has to flourish and be healed and there and present and felt in all sorts of ways. And sometimes the most compassionate thing you can do for yourself and someone else is absolutely walking away from the situation and not saying another unkind thing on either party's part. And from a distance, always sending them metta, that sense of goodwill, that sincere desire for that person to be happy, to really mean it. That's that sincere part. We have to mean it. That's what we're working on. To truly mean, when we send these thoughts of goodwill to everyone everywhere, to truly mean it. To want them to have the conditions for happiness. To have the capacity for that happiness. To develop that happiness in the same way we do for ourselves.